chapter 2. We'll read together uh, the first 13 verses of this chapter. We, uh, we are, or we have anyway, bounced around a bit. We have looked at this chapter a couple of times. Last week we were in Romans chapter 3. It was Reformation Sunday. Uh, it's a good place to be on Reformation Sunday, taking a good, hard, close look at the gospel, and particularly, if you'll remember these words, words that I encourage you to have in your vocabulary, these words, redemption, redemption, substitution and imputation, and propitiation. If you don't remember what they're all about, if you don't know what they're all about, let's have lunch this week. I have some good news for you. Uh, We looked last week at Romans 3, but we're coming back to chapter 2 and want to look at these first 13 verses. We've looked first at the one who is being addressed here, who is this man to whom Paul refers in verses 1 and 3. Do you suppose, O man, you have no excuse, O man? Well, Paul is speaking to a Jewish audience. He's speaking specifically to the Jews at this point. And then we look generally at what is going on in this second chapter. And what we've seen is that what Paul is attempting to do in this chapter is expose the inadequacy of Jewishness, the inadequacy of the law, and the inadequacy of circumcision to make someone right with God. So that's the inadequacy of ethnicity. It's the inadequacy of moral rectitude. And it's the inadequacy of religious performance. They're all inadequate. That's what Paul is seeking to do as he addresses this Jewish audience in Rome. And we're going to dig a little bit more deeply as we look at these 13 verses, the first part of this second chapter. So read with me. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges... For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do these things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, do you suppose, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. 
this is God's word. Uh, Boy, do I need help in explaining it, and boy, do you need help in understanding it. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, great king and head of the church, high and lifted up, having given your spirit to the church, come and help us. Help us to understand this your word, that you might be praised, and that our hearts, again, might be changed and be at rest. We pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as we look at this, um, begin to look again and look, as I said, a little more deeply at Romans chapter 2, I want to take a minute to explain something to you, which I will call a methodological thing, okay? A methodological thing, which is to say, I, I I want to help you understand a little bit better my method, Okay, it's not mine. It's not unique to me. Um, I, you know, through 30 years and more of ministry, I've read lots of sermons, interacted with lots of my, you know, dead friends, these people I refer to pretty regularly. Um, and I see this in them. I've learned this from them. And the images that I'll use to help you understand the method are the slinky and the funnel. So you can call this the slinky funnel method of dealing with God's word. You remember the slinky, those of you who are old enough to remember those wire things that went round and round and round and would go downstairs? Well, here's the slinky method. The slinky method makes you feel like you're going in circles, but you're actually making progress as you go in those circles. You think about it. The same with a funnel. If you're in a funnel, rather a nauseating image, I suppose, you go round and round and round and round, but as you go round and round and round and round, you're making progress. You're going from the wide end of the funnel to the narrow end of the funnel. The slinky method of preaching and teaching, the funnel method of preaching and teaching, has us returning again and again and again and again to things that we've seen and heard before, but which we should not lose sight of, because if we lose sight of them, we're going to misunderstand what may be going on in a particular place. You can look at a particular text, and if you isolate that text from the larger context, you can misunderstand that particular text. Do you understand what I'm saying? So... Please bear with me as I employ the slinky funnel method. I'm going to do it. I've been doing it. Maybe you've noticed it, and now I'm just telling you what it is that I've been doing, and I'm intentional and purposeful about this. Maybe it's because I'm the only one who between Sundays has a tendency to forget. And so I'm doing this for myself. But I don't think that's the case. I think it's true for all of us. I think we have a tendency to forget. So what is the wide end of the funnel? The text that we're looking at is chapter 2, but every text has a context. It has a wider setting, a wider context. That's the wide end of the funnel. What's the wide end of the funnel? Well, the wide end of the funnel is the big story that unfolds across the whole of the Scriptures and to which Paul has alluded in the first few verses of Romans chapter 1. What What is this gospel that he is talking about? What is this good news that he's not ashamed to proclaim? Well, the good news 
is Jesus. The good news is Jesus. The good news is the promised son, the promised anointed Messiah who has come as a king to put things right in his realm. That's why he comes. He comes to put things right. That's the wide end of the funnel. That's the big story. The king has come. And Paul is not ashamed to proclaim and herald this because he's waited for it his whole life. He's waited for it for centuries. And it's the hope of the world. It's the hope of the world to which God's people said, they should say amen. It's the hope of the world. This great good news, the king has come. Not in earthly princes, not in earthly kings, not in earthly presidents. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus. And his blood and righteousness. My hope is the king. And that's why Paul is so glad to herald this. Well, as you move down the funnel, if the king has come to put everything right, as you spin a little bit closer down to the center of the funnel, the thing that matters most to us among all of the things that Jesus has come to put right, the thing that matters most to us is what? Us. Right? I mean, we're all narcissists at the end of the day. And the thing that matters rightly most to us is us. And Jesus, in coming as a king to put all things right, focuses his attention first on those who are at the center of this story, those who were created to be God's vice regents, those who would rule over his creation, those who are at the apex of the creation. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Those who are designated by God to be his image bearers, but who having fallen from that lofty place, from that position of honor and privilege and glory and beauty. The first thing that Jesus comes to put right is us. And as you move farther down the funnel, more to the center of the funnel in coming to put us right, restore us, redeem us, deliver us, restore us. Recreate us, make us whole and complete. The first part of that work of putting us right is to put us back in right standing with God. Right standing with God. And so as the king of glory, he lays aside his glory and he lives and he dies. And the reason he lives and he dies is so that he might put those who are not right with God back in right standing with God. That's the argument that's unfolding. As you come to Romans chapter 2, that's... That's the direction. That's the trajectory. That's where the apostle is moving as he moves through this letter and writes to these Romans. And when you come to chapter 2, his burden is to say to these Jews who were taking their confidence from all of the wrong places, who were finding their security and their safety in all of the wrong places, his purpose is to show them that they are just as needy just as desperately needy as the Gentiles whom they really hate. Right? You remember this from a couple weeks ago? They're at the end of chapter 1, and the Jews are listening to Paul as he speaks through this letter, 
and they're saying, paste them, nail them, get the Gentiles. They're mean, nasty, brutish people. Get them. But Paul then says, hold it, time out. This isn't just about the Gentiles. This is also about the Jews. This is also about you. And so he exposes these, what we call false righteousnesses. These things that religious people very often can find their comfort in. We can very often find our comfort in, in, in being religious, in being the religious people. We can find our comfort in our moral rectitude. Thank God I'm not like that sinner over there. Thank God I'm not like that. I, I come to church every Sunday. I give my tithe. I give my offering. I do the right things. Thank God I'm not like that person. The religious people can lapse into these things and say, these are the things that grant me acceptance with the Father. These are the things that give me assurance of my salvation. I've been circumcised. I've been baptized. And Paul would say, no, no. Ethnicity, being a religious people, is not enough. Moral rectitude is not enough. Religious practices are not enough. No, you need something more. And what is the more that you need? The more that you need is something outside yourself entirely, alien to you, as C.S. Lewis would put it, and and others, an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is not your own, but that comes to you from someplace outside yourself. You need something outside yourself to give you right standing in the presence of God. That's the burden of Paul's argument here. And that's what we looked at last week in Romans 3. That's where this thing has headed. It's headed in the direction of Romans 3, 21 to 26. We jumped ahead. We took a look ahead to see what is the ground, what is the basis of our acceptance with God. And that basis is Christ's life of perfect obedience, wherein he secures righteousness. He now possesses, if you will, the treasury of merit. He is the meritorious one. He has kept the law, obeyed the law. He possesses the righteousness. And having secured that righteousness by his perfect life, he goes to the cross where he may become the sin-bearing substitute for you and me. For sinners who don't have a righteousness, who need one that's outside themselves, and who need to be cleansed of their guilt their impurity, their sin. Paul gives us the foundation for how we can be made right with God in chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. We got there last week. He's not there yet in chapter 2. Now, why do I say all of this? Why do I provide you with all of this slinky stuff, all this funnel stuff? Because Paul says some things in chapter 2 that are frankly very arresting and even at first blush may seem to contradict what he has said up to this point and may seem to contradict where he is going with his argument. Right? Now, again, where is he going with his argument? He's moving in the direction of Romans 3.23. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, all, everybody, without exception. 
Or you could look at Galatians chapter 2, where Paul says, by works of the law will no one be justified in his sight. Meaning, will no one find acceptance with God. Meaning, no one will be declared innocent on the basis of works of the law. That's the direction he's moving. Well, what are the troubling things that he says in chapter 2? What are the things that, that arrest us and that could actually distract us from the trajectory of his argument if we don't keep them in the context of his argument? Are you with me? Do you understand what we're saying here? Well, these are the things. He says these things in Romans 2, verses 5 and 6. Four four and five, I'm sorry. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And then verses 12 and 13, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Do you get, do you get the, I mean, are you getting the sort of cognitive dissonance that there is here? Which is it? Which is it, Paul? On what basis am I declared innocent before God? On what basis do I find acceptance with God? On what basis am I justified before God? Is it on the basis of what Christ has done? Or is it on the basis of what I do? Which is it, Paul? Help me understand. Well, Paul's not here to help you understand, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to help you understand. I've labored over this. I mentioned this to to Glenn before the service. I've labored over this through this week, and I've just poured over this passage and read the commentators and thought and reflected and been awakened in the middle of the night. What is he saying? What is going on here? Well, let me give you two things. Let me just suggest two things here. First, remember what Paul is doing Remember what he's doing in this chapter. He is warning Jews. He is warning the religious people who think they are secure simply because they are religious. He's warning them. He's interacting with them. He's anticipating their objections to the things that he's going to say. He's anticipating their responses to the things that he has said. And the reason he's able to anticipate these things and interact with them is because he is one of them, right? He is a Jew. He used to think like this. He used to hate Gentiles. He used to think himself above Gentiles. You can read Philippians 3 to see that the list of credentials that the apostle Paul had. Hebrew of the Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, meaning putting people to death, trying to stamp out this cult 
called the way, these followers of Jesus. Now he got to the place where he saw it all as rubbish, as a mountain. I'm not trying to be offensive here. This is what Paul said, a mountain of dung. That's how he viewed. That's how he viewed his credentials, his righteousness. But he understands how these people think. He understands what is going on in their heads. And what he's doing in chapter 2 is simply seeking to expose their hypocrisy. That's what he's doing. He's seeking to expose the hypocrisy of the Jews. And, And please, I'm not speaking ethnically here. I'm speaking theologically. I'm referring to a mindset, a mindset which says, I'm, I'm secure because of these things. I'm in right relationship because of these things. These are things which constrain and compel God to declare me innocent. Okay? It's a mindset that Paul is addressing. And what he's doing in this second chapter, and this is the second thing, he is seeking to expose this hypocrisy. Okay? He's seeking to expose this hypocrisy by showing them what true religion looks like. And by contrasting true religion with false religion, that's what he's doing here. What he isn't doing in this passage is establishing the ground or the basis upon which a person finds acceptance with God. That's not what he's doing. He's in the midst of demolishing all of the false foundations that people will rest upon as they seek to find their acceptance with God. He's continuing to do that. And what he's doing very specifically is contrasting true religion with false religion. What does true religion look like? What does false religion look like? You see, he's drawing a contrast between these two. Again, let me say it. What he's not doing at this point is seeking to establish the foundation upon which a person finds acceptance with God. That's not what he's doing here. But rather he is contrasting what I would call true religion and false religion. So what are the contrasts? Well, there are three of them in the text, verses 4 and 5. Look at them again. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What does true religion look like? True religion looks like soft, penitent hearts. False religion looks like hard and impenitent hearts. True religion looks at the mercy and kindness and forbearance of God and says, not, look at me. I am a child of God. Look at me. I am righteous. Look at me, I am accepted by God. Look at me, I have the truth, I have the law, I have circumcision. To put it in focus, to put it in terms that we can understand, true religion does not say, look at me, I am right, I am reformed, I am, I am, I am. 
True religion doesn't say those things. True religion says, don't look at me at all. Don't look at me at all. Look at the kindness and mercy and forbearance of God. Because it is the kindness and forbearance and mercy of God alone which account for the fact that I am who I am. True religion, to use the imagery of the gospel in its fullness, looks at the grace of God, looks at the cross and says, for me? For me? For me? The God of glory would empty himself, would humble himself, would leave the presence of his Father, would leave the riches of that glory and robe himself in weakness, in frailty, in humility, would suffer at the hands of those whom he loved with an everlasting love, he would do that for me? That's what Paul is saying in chapter 2. To put it another way, false religion is presumptuous. True religion melts the heart. True religion causes me to marvel and wonder. Here's the second thing. First place, true religion is humble and penitent in contrast with false religion, which is proud and impenitent. Here's the second thing. False religion is self-seeking and contentious. True religion, true spirituality is patient in well-doing. Verses 7 and 8. He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. To them he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, there will be wrath and fury. The contrast here is between true religion, which is patient in well-doing and indiscriminately so, patient in well-doing, patient in seeking what is glorious and honorable and what leads to immortality, patient in well-doing. That is true religion. False religion is self-seeking and contentious. Here's how the gospel works, my friends. Here's how I want it to work in my life, and I want it to work this way in your life. I want for the gospel to work in this way 
the more I see the wonder of the cross, which is the highest expression of mercy and kindness and patience. The more I see the wonder of the cross, the more tender-hearted I become. The more tender-hearted I become. It is seeing God in Christ moved outside himself in the direction of the undeserving and unworthy. And that is me, my friends. The undeserving, the unworthy, the sinner, seeing that he has been supremely patient in well-doing toward me. It is seeing that, that I begin to move outside myself and move in the direction of those who are in need every bit as much as I was and am indiscriminately. Indiscriminately. Jesus was not discriminating when he moved out away from the heart of his father in the direction of people in need. He was indiscriminate, wasn't he? He didn't wait for people to meet certain conditions before he would engage them. He wouldn't do that. So many conversations I'd like to share with you, but frankly, I get too agitated and I'm afraid I will give offense. And I don't want to give offense. I just want us to look at the cross and ask ourselves, what does true spirituality look like? What does true religion look like? What does gospel-nourished, gospel-driven religion look like? It looks like Jesus moving away from the Father and moving outside the security and safety of his Father's house where everything is right, everything is perfect, everything is secure, moving in the direction of what is dangerous. What is the effect of the riches of his kindness upon me? I have to ask myself that question. False religion, Paul says, is contentious. It is self-seeking. But true religion is not contentious. It is patient in well-doing indiscriminately. And then here's the third thing. Verse 13, false religion hears but does not do. False religion hears but does not do. True religion hears and does. True religion hears and does. Again, what is it that moves me in the direction of obedience? Is it rules? Come on, folks. You've seen the tax code. You've seen the tax code or you've heard about it. You know, if if the United States government would simply say, look, we just want you to do this. Out of everything that you earn, we want you to give your government X percent. Just whether you're a company an individual, whatever you are. Flat tax thing, right? Just give us, it's a simple thing, right? One rule, one rule. 
I guarantee you, in 10 years or less, we would have a tax code as thick as the one we currently have. Why? Because rules can't constrain people to do what is right and selfless and gracious. What is the one thing that is going to move me in the direction of doing? It is only as I begin to see how kind, how merciful, how long-suffering, how patient the God of glory has been with me as expressed in the cross. Nothing is big enough to do what the cross alone can do. False religion hears but doesn't do. False religion is content to hear and know and discuss and debate and come to conclusions and then establish divisions. I'm of Peter. I'm of Apollos. I am of Paul. I am of Christ. I am of Luther. I am of Calvin. I am of Sproul. I am of Ferguson. Thank you, Ray. I am of Wesley. I am of Whitfield. False religion is content to listen and discuss and debate, but true religion hears and does. True religion melts hearts. True religion which begins to see the wonder of the grace of God, the lavish mercy and kindness of God, forgiveness and cleansing and acceptance. True religion says what Isaiah said when the angel came and touched his lips with the coal. When Isaiah understood that his sin was taken away, that it had been purged. And Isaiah heard a voice, now who will go for us? And Isaiah leapt to his feet and said, here am I, send me. And Paul says, it is the doers of the law who will be justified. Now here's what you need to understand. This is critical for understanding this passage. What you need to know is that there are two senses in which this word justified is employed in Paul's letter to the Romans. And these are they. The first sense is this. It is the action of God whereby a person is given the status of being just in God's sight based upon the finished work of Christ, plus nothing. Let me say it again. The first sense is the sense in which, as an action of God, a person is given the status of being just in God's sight, based upon the finished work of Christ. And then here is the second sense. The action of God whereby 
a person is recognized as being just in the presence of God. Do you get the difference? One is a conferred status based upon what somebody else has done. The second is the judgment of God that the person who claims to be justified is in fact justified based upon what is seen in that person's life. Do you get the difference? It's exactly what James was arguing for in his letter in the second chapter. James says, in effect, summarizing everything that he says in the second chapter, you say you have faith, I will show you my faith by my works. My works will be a demonstration of the vitality, the reality of the faith that I claim to have. Faith without works is dead, James says. Paul in his own way is simply saying the same thing. He is contrasting true religion, true spirituality, gospel life and obedience with false gospel life and obedience. And true gospel life leads to true gospel obedience. A true apprehension of the kindness, patience, faithfulness, loving kindness, mercy, grace of God melts the heart and moves the heart away from itself out into the world to demonstrate by the manner in which I live that I have been loved with an everlasting love. True religion is humble and penitent in view of the grace of God. True religion is patient in well-doing. True religion hears and does. And to that, God will say, this is the real deal right here. Not the ground of acceptance, but the fruit, the evidence, the indicators before God and the whole world that the faith which is claimed is the faith which is real. That's how the gospel works. And I wonder, I ask myself, I ask you, do I see this? Do I understand this? Do I understand in the first place, and I'll stop with this, do I understand in the first place that my acceptance with God is not based upon anything that I do? It is based solely on what Christ has done, but given what Christ has done, the magnitude of it, the wonder of it, the glory of it, it melts my heart and it moves me out away from myself in the direction of those who are in like need without discrimination. And all to the glory of God who looks at that and says, this is the real deal. This is the real deal. More and more, folks, more and more, I pray for myself and for us that the real thing, the real deal will be seen in us to the glory of God, to the honor of Jesus, and for the good of those around us.
Let me pray for us to that end. Oh, Lord, humble us under your gentle but mighty hand. Humble us under your gentle but mighty hand. And as your grace has been operative in our lives, would your grace continue to fuel the fires of obedience in our souls so that we, like you, Lord Jesus, would move out away from what is safe and what is comfortable more and more in the direction of those who, like us, have the deepest and most desperate of needs. Help us to that end, Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. In your name, amen. You are not yet fully pure in heart, but you are moving that way. So let me encourage you to stand and sing with confidence, with assurance in the mercy and grace of Jesus. Number 604, rejoice ye pure in heart.